Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show. Good to have you along. It's Wednesday, December the 23rd, and tonight it is the Raptors home opener. They're going to be playing New Orleans, and we'll be talking about what you can expect as they get started from their temporary home in Tampa Bay. I, I want to start off the show um, by talking about a few things that involve uh, some headlines when it comes to COVID-19. Dr. Zane Chagala joins the show. He's an infectious disease physician at St. Joseph's Health uh, Center in Hamilton and also an associate professor at McMaster University. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on. No problem. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here, Kate. Let's start off with um, the news, and it's it's less than great news that the modern uh, Moderna vaccine, um, the antibodies might not last as long as we hope. This is a new study by the New England Journal of Medicine. They suggest that the long-term efficacy of their uh, mRNA vaccine, specifically the neutralizing antibody count, maybe less than we were hoping for. I think by now we're, we're all familiar with antibodies and what they do, but why is the count super important? I mean, it's, it's a surrogate measure for protection, but it's not the full story. And so people shouldn't panic by this by any means that the vaccines aren't going to give long-lasting protection. As we follow the people that got the Moderna vaccine, their antibody levels do drop a little bit in the first 119 days. There are a couple of people whose antibody levels are, you know, at less than what would be a protective range. But, you know, our antibodies are a dynamic process. They're not, you know, the, the level of the amount of circulating antibody, the concentration of antibody is only one marker. And our bodies are often trained and primed to deal with things, even if the antibody responses or the antibodies aren't at high levels. Once, uh, you know, the, the pathogens re-encountered, you have a memory response that, necess- that triggers off antibody production in that sense. So, you know, it is, it is something we need to watch for. Obviously, as the mass vaccine campaigns get out there, we need to actually start seeing who gets reinfected and what their characteristics are, whether or not they have good or bad antibody levels. Um, and, you know, it, it starts a broader discussion in terms of, um, you know, if, if, if we get a, a resurgence or, or some more COVID, you know, is another vaccine strategy important? Is it boosting important? You know, what's the long-term strategy for, for these vaccines? But it's not necessarily a failure of any of these. And again, there's ways around this, even in the worst case, that, uh, that the antibodies drop to less than protective at three to six months. And what's the way around it? Is it adding extra doses, just like a booster vaccine? Yeah, exactly. And again, you know, there, there are lots of different examples, like your tetanus shot every 10 years, where you just you have to do it because your antibody levels fall to a certain point, or your pneumonia shot for the older people, you know, it, they just drop to a certain point that you just need that boosting response. So it's, you know, it's, it's certainly a challenge in terms of the infrastructure and the logistics to do it, but it's not a, an insurmountable problem by any means. Okay, let's let's turn our attention to another vaccine-related headline. A Canadian vaccine just got greenlit for human trials in Canada. Uh, could be in use by the end of 2021. They're saying this is not an mRNA vaccine, and it is uh, so. It's not like Pfizer and Moderna. This is a protein subunit vaccine. So, in English, can you tell us what this means? Yeah, so this is a, a piece of the COVID protein that's uh, stuck to what's called an adjuvant. So that's a, a you know a molecule that really just triggers your immune response to kind of recognize this protein and, and kind of scavenge it and destroy it and then send it to your immune system in that sense. So it's very actually very similar to the way we do hepatitis B vaccination and tetanus vaccination. Um, so you know it's, it's a good. Uh, 
a good sign. It's Canadian, it's homegrown in that sense too. So if it does develop, hopefully we have, you know, manufacturing capability. Um, you know, this is a phase one trial right now. So this is just a dose finding expedition to make sure it's safe and what the effective dose is to get the right response. Uh, so there's still a lot more work to be done, as we've seen with the mRNA vaccine, the six to 12 month window to actually get people through the entire phase one, phase two, phase three. Um, but, you know, perspective, and, and as we're talking about, you know, in that first conversation around antibody responses waning, you know, it may not be that at the end of the day when, when these vaccines or the antibody responses get to a point where we need to boost them, that we use the same vaccines again. All of these vaccines that are being developed now in the pipeline might be the boosters at the end of the day. So rather than triggering the immune response the same way, you trigger the immune response a different way uh, to get, you know, even more protection as things move forward. And there are also other advantages to this subunit type of vaccine, right? Apparently they can, they don't have to be stored at the, the cold temperature. Is what else would be an advantage? Uh, you know, theoretically they're safe in pregnant and breastfeeding women because it's just a, again, a protein, you know, similar to other protein based vaccines. Uh, they could be given to immunocompromised individuals. Yeah, there's, there's lots of great advantages there. And then again, you know, more broader population that would be uh, available. And, you know, the, the, the refrigeration advantage is certainly a big piece, especially as we're talking about the low and middle income countries and their vaccine campaigns. You know, that's, you know, having more tools in the chest for that is, is going to be incredibly important moving forward. You know, and I'm glad you brought that up because we have been accused of hogging vaccines here in uh, Canada at the expense of third world countries. This would be a way to give back. Basically, uh, we start producing uh, these subunit vaccines and ship them all over the world. Can we produce them in Canada? Are they easier to produce? Yeah, they're much, much easier, right? This is, this is you know, this is, again, the same process that we have in place for vaccines that are already available on the market. So it would just be mass manufacturing facilities that would just need to rejig slightly to get to these vaccines. But, you know, the, the recipe is pretty much there in many facilities. The mRNA vaccines we're talking about today are very specific. They require genetic laboratories, and, and so that they're a little bit more tricky to kind of scale up. But subunit vaccines are easy and, again, could be scaled up around the world relatively quickly, including in our own country. I want to ask you about uh, COVID-19 testing as we get set to go into lockdown. We're heading into lockdown, of course, on Boxing Day. Uh, this was an interesting story that caught my eye. Lake Ridge Health, they uh, run a bunch of COVID-19 testing centers. They're going to switch to uh, holiday hours this season. So they'll be operating under some shortened hours and in some cases closed on like December 25th, December 28th, January 1st. Should we be closing COVID-19 testing centers in the middle of a pandemic and a second wave as severe as this one? I mean, ideally, no, but I think we have to recognize that healthcare workers are incredibly worked to the bone. And, you know, it's, you know, there, there hopefully is more access to testing outside of those centers and people that do need it urgently. But at the end of the day, you know, healthcare workers are staffing hospitals, healthcare workers are staffing long-term care facilities, healthcare workers are going through their own outbreaks. You know, the, the ability to be able to staff something like this is, is going to be compromised by the fact that, you know, these people do need a day off, uh, you know, a couple of days off to spend with their families. And so, you know, these clinics require a huge amount of administration work, um, you know, clerical staff, medical staff. Uh, and so, you know, the ability to actually staff them appropriately on a day like Christmas uh, or, mm-hmm. or New Year's is tough. And then I okay. think... 
I, I'm just, I'm sorry to interrupt. I yeah. just really want to ask you about this because I, I, I've gone to one of these testing centers. I've had mm. one of the nasal pharynge uh, tests. So let me ask you, I mean, it didn't, the work that was being done, not to uh, diminish anybody's expertise, mm. but from the onlooker's point of view, it didn't look that difficult. I mean, you have to be highly organized. You're using a computer program. Um, you have to run through some instructions. So you have to be a, a very good communicator, make sure people understand what's going on. Um, and then you have to administer the, the the swab up the nose. How specialized is it to, I, I think where I'm going with this, is to do one of these tests? And could we not train more people to um, perform these tests? Yeah, absolutely. But again, it's not. Like, I think people see it as the person that puts the swab in their nose. But there are so many other steps along the way, right? It's the registration, sending the information to OLIS, our government system, getting people actually swabbed, making sure the specimen actually gets transported to the lab, making sure the lab's able to actually process the specimen. There's, you know, as much as we see the one person who shoves the swab in the nose, which, again, mm-hmm. is not actually technically that difficult, it's those other six people that need to work for that, that one, one test, right? And so, you know, staffing these centers, particularly for 12-hour shifts, so you can't put people on for the entirety of it. Um, you know, it's 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 not as easy as, as as everything, and I think you know the I I wish people could be tested every day at any time during the day. Really, but they can. Yeah, which, yeah, I know. But again, I mean, they can. We are in a pandemic. We just have to train more people. Do you think the government should be throwing more money at healthcare uh, in order to get more testing done? Because we yeah. all we know that testing is key to getting this um, oh, the yeah. pandemic under control. <laughs> You know, I get, I get what you're saying. I mean, honestly, it's just, you know, a lot of these hospitals are running these assessment centers with staff that are already stretched to the brink, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I mean, maybe this was a plan uh, in advance or kind of combining an urgent care center to do some of this testing. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, again, you know, hospitals are running on fumes and trying to get everything in their community and long-term care in their own facilities sorted out. It's, uh, you know, it's the time of year where they want to give a little bit of time back to the staff in that sense. And I think people, they do have symptoms, just stay home for the day and then mm-hmm. go to the next one in that sense. Don't don't make, you know, don't treat it that you can't get tested as you don't have COVID in that sense. Okay. And we don't want you going to another, driving to another jurisdiction because we're supposed mm-hmm. to stay in our own if we can. I want to ask you um, if I could, because this is one of the big reasons why I wanted to get you on the show is ask mm-hmm. about... Uh, what Doug Ford said yesterday. Doug Ford's still talking about the airports. I'm just going to run a clip, if you don't mind, and get you to respond to what Doug Ford said yesterday in his press conference. Loretta, number one. This new strain of COVID, it's a massive threat that uh, we just can't take lightly. And we need to do everything possible to prevent it from getting into Canada. And and we're prepared to do whatever we can right here in Ontario to help the federal government shore up our our borders. We're partners. We can work together. And I've directed our officials to begin uh, preparing infrastructure necessary for testing at our airports. And I hope uh, we won't have to go it alone. But uh, we're prepared to do that if we must. I think that Ford should be prepared to do that because yesterday when I was talking to the Minister of uh, transportation secretary, uh, who is also an MP, he seemed to think that Ford is talking about rapid testing, and there really isn't a plan for rapid testing. He kind of said, "Look, we're working with McMaster University on this, you know, COVID volunteer test. We have been. We're we're seeing that there's not that many 
um, people coming in to the airport that are COVID positive from what we're seeing in, in our tests there, our study that we've been doing. And so I think it's unlikely that they'll, you know, Ford won't have to go alone on this. What are your thoughts on testing at the airport? I, you know, I, I work at McMaster. I know the data here. Like I would say it's a good idea and, and I'll give you two reasons. One you know, that McMaster study still showed 1% of people were positive, and about 70% of those that were positive were at the point of entry in that sense. So you will catch 70% of your cases walking into Canada by testing at the airport. And we think 1% is a lot, but a flight of 100, that's one person, right? Like, that's one person walking into the country. Um, there's some data from the Globe and Mail today to suggest that, you know, looking at roaming uh, passes for people from the United States and Canada and their phone mobility, that's 77% are actually adhering to the quarantine rules appropriately. And there, there is a percentage that are getting out of the house in that first 14 days. So it's not a perfect system right now. Knowing this variant in the UK and the fact that there may be other variants around the world, you know, I think the point of entry into Canada is so important. I think this is a renewed call to make sure it's, it's well protected Testing people at the border makes complete sense. If you can isolate the people that are positive right off the bat, still, mm-hmm. still quarantine the people that are there. In the MAC study, you know, 30% of the residuals were caught after day seven. So, again, make sure people have access to a day seven test. You know, you're at least isolating the positive. You know the people that aren't a threat if they kind of skip out of their quarantine in that sense, or at least picked up 70% of them. You know, I think it, it, it just makes sense and rather many other countries are using border testing as part of their entry strategy not just kind of saying quarantine and then you know we've heard stories of people where their quarantine process is pretty minimal or a couple of calls or that type of thing right so you know i think there's something to be said about testing you know the cdc has dropped its quarantine requirements to seven days with the test and i think you know realistically why not do that a day one day a port of entry test and a, a day seven test get people in for seven days, which I think they'll adhere to better than 14 days, and you've identified 95-plus percent of the people that are a threat to Canada. Okay, but the people that would break that quarantine then in the same uh, breath, and we were talking about that just moments ago, the people that would break that quarantine would still break a seven-day. Should we be looking at, you know, what they do in India is they have isolation centers, and you go there for seven days? Yeah, I mean, it's it's all, it's a good ask, and I think places like Australia and New Zealand, who have really gotten rates under control, have used this as, as their big point of entry or the way to protect their borders in that sense. It's not perfect, um, but, you know, it is it is another ask on top of that, and I think if, if you were able to do it, that would be great. It's a huge amount of infrastructure, um, but, you know, maybe it's built into the, flight of a, uh, the cost of a flight that you are able to pay for a quarantine hotel or something along those lines, which is Australia is doing as part of its point of entry. Um, you know, until that point, until that infrastructure is developed, I think we can, I think people can adhere better to a seven day of quarantine. We certainly can send resources to make sure people adhere to that seven day of quarantine rather than dealing with day 14. There is a way out of this that improves safety, but also improves adherence too. Okay. Um, Ford is in, in just in the last 30 seconds here, if I could ask you one other thing. Doug Ford yesterday said he was going to approach the feds to talk about a mandatory pre-screening departure test. It wouldn't cost Canada anything because it would happen as you board your flight from wherever you are to Canada, you get screened. Um, do you think that these are important? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, these are a lot of other countries have done this too. The requirement for flying to many places or getting on many airlines is having a negative test. You know, I think it's it's also an expectation, um, and it improves safety in that sense, right? So, 
Yeah, I agree. I think the, these are interesting things that we can add to make sure that our, our quarantine period is much safer. You know, we're in an era where we can offer tests, so why aren't we using them at the border where there are people coming in positive and we can actually protect the country against them? So pre-screening departure tests, they're much more than just, a, you know, taking a temperature at, at an airport. They are showing a negative uh, within maybe 72 hours of, of your flight COVID test. Yeah, exactly. If I want to fly okay. to Hawaii today and be released from quarantine, I need to show a test 72 hours before arriving in Hawaii. I have to go to an assessment center here. So the recognizing that someone else who's coming from somewhere else coming to Canada can do the same. I think it's reasonable. All right. After a championship in 2019 and uh, start in the bubble in 2020, uh, they had a, a short off season and the Raptors will resume uh, normal play tonight. It is the open season opener against uh, New Orleans Pelicans tonight in Tampa Bay. Rachel Brady is the sports reporter with the Globe and Mail, and she's uh, good enough to come on the show today. Rachel, thanks for being here. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Now, I am not really uh, the type of person that would could uh, accurately talk about sports. So I usually get people to help me out in, in the realm of sure. sports. I, I, I enjoy it. I'm one of those bandwagon jumpers. I like to get on the bandwagon when we are winning. Right. Um, so how are the Raptors expected to do this season? Yeah, it, they certainly aren't going in with all the uh, the fanfare and the high expectations of, you know, a championship, certainly. Um, the Eastern Conference, which they play in, has gotten very, very competitive with some really, really interesting and very good teams with players moving teams for this year. Um, so certainly they're not maybe expected to finish at the top of the conference but you know what they weren't either last year and they ended up finishing second despite losing Danny Green and Kawhi Leonard and similarly this year they've just lost two very important players in Marc Gasol and Serge Ibaka so they're going to have to uh, replace and kind of you know retool things and um, they're going to have a little different look this year um, but they're going to have a similar identity and um, you know what I would still expect them to be a high playoff team probably not as high as last year maybe but but certainly they're in the mix right you mentioned that we've lost Serge Ibaka which I am very sad about because he was easy <laughs> on the eyes not going to lie but who should we be focusing on who should we be looking at um, you know to step up and take over when we've lost some players Wow. Well, certainly I think Fred Van Vliet is going to take an extra step up. He signed a big contract um, in free agency. He could have left and decided to stay. Um, and he has always been uh, a leader on the team, even when he was a young guy and went undrafted. He's always sort of overachieved of what people um, expected from him early on, and he's just a real natural leader. So he's certainly going to take the reins there and and sort of you know, pair with Kyle Lowry as the team leaders. And then you're also, we're going to look for big seasons from OG and Anobi and from Pascal Siakam. Um, Siakam signed a big max deal last year um, and then had a great first half of the season, had an all-star nod, and then really just wasn't the same player in the NBA mm -hmm. bubble. So he's definitely looking to bounce back. And OG Ananobi had a career year last year. Everyone will remember that great buzzer beater three-point shot that he took um, in the bubble that just made everybody go wild. Um, he just just this week actually signed an extension. So those guys are kind of going to be your pillar four with Lowry. And uh, so 
you know, they're going to be turning to some new faces. They're going to be looking to some guys who didn't maybe play as many heavy minutes before, um, but are going to have some new roles. So it's going to be interesting. I do know a little bit about um, the players as far as storylines go. I know that Siakam was really disappointed last season with how he performed in the bubble, as you mentioned. But he said somewhere along the lines, like he actually started to, I believe, rewatch old games because they record everything. Um, and he said he just noticed that he had lost his joy. And that's something that he had always played with. And so I, I wonder, do you think it'll be difficult for him to you know, somehow uh, regain that joy of playing uh, in a in a temporary home in Tampa Bay? Um, and do you think it'll be helpful that they're bringing fans back? Like, do you think he'll feed off the fans? Yeah, there won't be a, t- a lot of fans, right? There'll be about 3,000, and you've sort of seen what it kind of looks like. Certainly in Florida, some venues won't have any fans at all, but they're sort of sprinkled, so they don't, you know, make a lot uh, of noise. But I'm, I'm sure, you know, many of them will be family members of players and staff, so there'll be some familiar faces, and I'm sure there's some level of support there. Um, but as for Siakam, he definitely is the first to say he was the hardest on himself about that performance. He certainly didn't think that that was all star caliber stuff. Um, and so he actually, instead of sort of shrinking away from it and saying, you know, that was last year, he actually made a YouTube series out of it in the off season, the very short off season that the NBA had. And in Los Angeles, uh, he had cameras actually following him in his off season to say, look, I'm trying to be accountable here. I'm trying to show you that I'm going back to work. Um, and he wanted to show people that he didn't take that lightly and he took their criticism to heart and it hurt and he was going back to work. So, uh, wow, how impressive is that? Yeah, it's an, and it's an interesting way. I mean, as we know, there's a long list of players who want to own their own story and their own content, um, their own storytelling they want to take sort of ownership of that um, these days with, you know, the way that you can bring cameras inside everything and everybody can sort of have their own um, sense of sort of journalism in a way, right? The way athletes can craft their own um, video and in a very good way these days too, depending, you know, who they work with. And, and that could be worth them. a lot, right, Rachel? Because we're talking about branding. And when you're talking about branding, you're talking about endorsement deals. Yeah, and and he did that one with Red Bull, conveniently, who have, you know, access to wonderful resources in terms of very, you know, high, glossy um, video and that. So it's not like he was just taking selfies. Um, But it's a very intimate look, actually, inside... the life of a player who's trying to rebound in an off uh, in an off season and it's interesting and it gives some insight Mm. about uh you know how hard it is and and what it takes to to get the edge back i'm interested in that would i just search it out on youtube because i know there's got to be somebody else that has the same question as as i do (laughs) yeah he has his own youtube channel actually okay that that series i believe is called humble hustle so he has his he just launched a youtube channel actually yeah Wow, that is interesting. Uh, the Raptors are playing in Tampa Bay. Apparently, this is a temporary home. Why is it temporary? And things could switch up in March. Can you tell us what you know? Yeah, I think um, the NBA and certainly the Raptors wanted to keep flexibility there uh, if things improve in the new year and then they're able and border restrictions change in the new year. I think they certainly, they made no mistake and, and no secret about the fact that they wanted to play in Toronto. And it when it became clear that that just wasn't going to be possible or palatable, um, you know, certainly in Canada with having American players cross the border, um, not just Raptors, but 
every other team in the league coming into Toronto, Canada was not, you know, not keen on it. So they want to they want to keep an open mind about whether or not it might be possible in a few months. So they've only put the schedule out up until the break in March, and then they'll they'll as that date approaches, they'll be able to reevaluate and see if they may be able to come home. But I mean, you know, what what the chances are of that? We 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 certainly don't know at this point. Rachel, I'm going to take a hard turn away from the Raptors and head over to Kauai if I could. I was reading online and really it was just a headline and a quick scan. So maybe you know more about this. Maybe there's nothing to this story. But it was about Kawhi Leonard and the fact that um, an uncle of his was working on the, uh, you know, you know, when he was looking around for deals to leave the Raptors, uh, an uncle was asking for some weird, um, I guess gets as far as the contract's concerned, and they may have broken some of the NBA's uh, regulations. Can you do you know anything about that? Yeah, I, I don't. Obviously, with Kawhi not being here anymore, I don't cover him on a regular basis anymore, and he's certainly, um, you know, always a subject of interest where people are are wondering because he's very close with his uncle, and his uncle sort of acted as a, sort of an agent even in the time that he was here. And there were always there was always conversation, um, you know, when he was in Toronto that you know some of the asks could have you know people wondered what some of the asks were and because obviously he didn't play in every game here and so mm-hmm. how much the uncle might have been involved in some of those conversations and stuff but yeah I don't have a lot of insights about okay. what's happening out there in that in in Kawhi's life since he left Toronto but uh certainly he's always a guy that everybody here wants to still keep a look you know, keep a watch. Well, the reason why I brought it up is, is is in the headline. It said that you know some regulations could have been broken, and maybe we could see him coming back to Toronto. But there's no truth in that in in your on your radar, right? Not that I've heard here that he okay. he would return here. But you never know. Obviously, the relationships I think are still are still great with the guys here as as far as that goes. But but I don't know about yeah the the, the returns here. That's I certainly don't hear that in the buzz. So tonight, it's a sold-out game. 3,800 fans will be in the stands wearing masks, socially distanced, not anywhere near the court. The tip-off is at 7.30 against the New Orleans uh, Pelicans. What can, what, what, can, what can we expect? Do you think we're going to win this game? Well, it's interesting, you know, that that's it's some, certainly some star players there that uh, that people will enjoy watching. You know, when you've got Lonzo Ball and, and Drew Bledsoe, or Eric Bledsoe, and Brandon Ingram, Zion Williamson, obviously, is a guy that everybody has been keen to see. And then you get to see the Raptors, like who they trot out in their in their starting lineup. Obviously, with losing their big guys, they got to probably put the new their new um, Australian center in, Aaron Baines. So, very interesting. I think the guard play is going to be especially interesting to see uh, Van Vliet and, and Lowry um, try to take on those two guards. So, yeah, I, I mean, they were close in the uh, in the opener last time, right? So it could be dramatic, and I think everybody will be looking mostly to see also how Siakam rebounds. I think he'll be pretty raring to go in his first, uh, his first night out. Well, that's it for the podcast. Did the show sound different to you today? That's because our producer was Glenn Bregonier. He's filling in for Chris Creston, did a great job today. And I want to thank you for your time. Have yourself a wonderful afternoon.